I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. As well as the Making Star Wars Podcast Network. Hey you guys, welcome to Steel Wars. I am comedian Steel Saunders and I do love Star Wars. And each week we find someone of interest to talk about it with. And this week we have got a much requested guest. He briefly popped up on our Star Wars Celebration blog pods, talking some wars with me. And both myself and you, the listener, tweeted to me more 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 and i had to block myself because i got sick of that guy's tweets but the result is from the full of sith podcast writer for starwars.com we have got brian young welcome to the show man oh thank you for having me it's uh it's something i've always wanted to do for years for 10 years this has been your dream yeah since i got into star wars blogging uh, being on the Steel Wars, Wars podcast is that's really this is I've this is Everest for me. <laughs> well, things can get a bit frosty from time to time, so uh, put on your mittens and let's see what happens. Uh, I've I've had the most frustrating day, Brian. I was telling you before, my my computer's very sad, so we're doing this uh, via phone to your Skype. Correct, so this is full yeah. disclosure. I'm, I'm feeling very, um, I don't have hand to uh, coin uh, or to borrow a phrase from George Costanza because you're handling the recording. So I feel a bit of a, a lesser podcaster than I normally do. Well, because you, now you just have plausible deniability. If it sounds bad, it's just like, it's that full of Sith guy's fault. <laughs> But I've also been using this long weekend to put my Star Wars cabinet together. And because I've just moved from Australia to LA, my wife's in New York for the weekend. So I thought I would go full nerd and try to get all my collectibles in this new cabinet I've got. And this morning I decided that the levels weren't working. I've got to move this to there, there to this, and I'm dealing with 96 Kenner figures that they really seem set on obeying the laws of gravity, Brian. Yeah, those Kenner figures, uh, especially if you've worked the joints a little bit too much, they uh, they don't like being upright. <laughs> I've got the little bases for them, but it's just my giant hands. Um, it's, it's no good, this... This frame does not, like, work well with uh, tinkering with little figures in a cabinet. But I feel like my new strategy is, is going to work well. And I, I look forward to sharing photos with everyone. But hey, are you much of a collector, Brian? Um, a little bit. I mean, I, I kind of go nuts for the toys when the movies are out. And then 
Um, every once in a while, I'll say, you know what I'd really like on my on my shelf today? I want the uh, the uh, carbon freezing chamber scene. And so I'll spend like two years putting together the carbon freezing chamber scene, and it'll be on my desk for a little while, and then it'll go in a box. And uh, I open all my toys, so I'm probably a rubbish collector. Um, I collect the cards a lot. Uh, that was the one thing I could get into when I was a kid because they were cheap. And I could mm-hmm. put them in a folder. So I had like one folder of all of my Star Wars collectibles. Um, so it was, the, it was the tops cards that I chased down pretty religiously. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of opening things up. Unless it's got a, like a crazy good, you know, limited edition packaging or like the, it displays super well. But I'm a fan of, you know, seeing what shoots and, and, and do all that stuff. So yeah. I, I would never call you a rubbish collector for that. However, if you did collect those tops cards, but you kept them in the pack, I might <laughs> give you an interesting look. Yeah, no, I um, I have one pack of uh, tops cards from '77 with the bubble gum still in them that I kept that I didn't open with the wax, the wax packaging and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I only picked that up. Uh, uh, probably four or five years ago, but that was just because I've already got that full set. So it's not like I needed the cards and I didn't have any packages. So I've got and, one. Uh, in case of emergency chew, break glass. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think that gum is old enough that it would break my jaw. It's man versus gum. I, I actually have got a couple of return of the Jedi packs in the packaging. Cause I, I think they were like selling them for like a dollar at some collector fair in Melbourne a little while back. And the, the wrappers are so cute. There is a Return of the Jedi packet of cards with a drawing of a Wokling that it melts my heart. I'm not sure if it would melt the gum inside it, but my heart yeah. is chewable marsh. Yeah. Now, let's go back to the beginning, Brian. What, what is your first memory of Star Wars? Um, I would have been about two. I was probably two months before my third birthday, and it was seeing Return of the Jedi for the first time. Uh, I remember it being a big deal because it was at a theater you had to walk into, and before that, I feel like all of my experience with movies had been at the drive-in theaters. And... Uh, yeah, Return of the Jedi really did a number on me. That's that's probably the earliest thing I can remember with any clarity. Yeah, you must have been so confused as a kid going to the movies and getting out of your car. You're just like, hey, what's going on? Yeah, no, it was, it was really like that. I remember being told we were going to the movies and then getting out of the car and being led across a parking lot. And I was like, this is... Uh, how, how does this work? You can go into a place and see a movie? <laughs> Will the car be okay? Yeah. My my first cinema, like my first memory of going to the movies was we're going to see Xanadu, uh, Olivia Olivia Newton John, and I could not. I didn't understand the concept of movies, and I was very upset that she wasn't there roller skating and singing in person. I I, I confused it with a concert. (laughs) That's. That's under, that's the probably the best experience anyone ever had with Xanadu, up to and including Gene Kelly. <laughs> that, that's your earliest memory at two. That seems early for a memory. I'm not yeah. sure if I'm. I don't. I don't know if I've got any that early. I mean, I I'd was like, to... I was 
almost three. And then there's just it's just Star Wars after that. So maybe it was that. <laughs> that yeah. And and so when you went to see Return of the Jedi, had you seen like Star Wars and Empire first, or you were just going in? You know, um, I I don't remember seeing Star Wars and Empire for the first time. I don't remember if they were after Return of the Jedi or if they were had been in my head before. Um, I'm not sure how they could have gotten into my head before because there wasn't really a robust home video market in 1983 or before then, and I don't think my parents could have afforded that anyway. Uh, so my guess is Return of the Jedi was probably the first thing I, I saw, and then it must have been either um, TV or or we'd rented a tape somehow of the other two movies for me to have seen them. But, uh, yeah, I don't... Like, as far as back as I can remember, Star Wars and Empire have always been just in my brain yeah i think i read this like the scholastic book of return of the jedi before i saw the movie but then when i saw the movie because i was so young i was still surprised about what happened i think when you're watching something like that at such a young age it uh it still has that power to shock you even even if you know what's going on and you're not really good at, at that age at imagining what things are going to look or feel like or sound like, mm. especially. And it's not like being a little kid and reading a storybook uh, isn't going to match sitting down and, and having John Williams blasted at you while you're watching these images come to life. True that. It was, it was weird because I've always tried to piece together of when I had this book. Because I used to have like the mail order at school. And I know I had the Return of the Jedi book with Luke holding the green saber on the front cover. And on the bus, on the way home, everyone, like, played a character in the book. And I remember that I was the cool kid. You know, I was very young. I was, was, you know, like, all the grade sixes were hanging with me on the bus because I had the Return of the Jedi book. So that was the one time that my nerd cred really worked for me. See, by the time I was uh, in elementary school, like, Star Wars had become completely passe. And so I was the kid who was like, hey, look at this great Star Wars toy I found in a thrift shop because you couldn't get them new anymore. And everybody was just like, that kid's weird. <laughs> and I had one Star Wars friend, and his older brother had all the toys, so we'd always go to his house afterward and try to convince his brother to let us play with all of his toys. Uh, which is a weird experience, like having to plead for the toys you want to play for, play with because they're like collector's items and no one else has them and you just don't have access to them. It wasn't like Tickle Me Elmo where your parents could just run out and wait in a line and punch somebody at Black Friday. To get one. <laughs> um, you know, like you had to really search for Star Wars toys in, in the, the mid to late 80s. Yeah, I, I remember when I was getting back into it in the 90s and – trying to and it was before facebook and all that stuff and i was trying to track down all the rich kids from school that had sweet collections <laughs> it was brutal when you watched it for the first time like who was the character that you sort of really related with luke um it was it was very much luke luke uh sort of captured something and i don't think i understood it until much later um but i had a very complicated relationship with my dad and he was very much like a bad guy in my life. So watching Luke negotiate all of that with Vader is something that, uh, that really meant a lot to me. And I don't think I understood it at that age. 
Um, but it sort of grew on me, and Luke was always very much that that character that I that I um, was uh, attracted to thematically. Um, but I remember like the two characters that stick out in my mind the most from watching it that first time, though, are Salacious Crom and Wicket, right? Where Salacious Crom just had that laugh and those close-ups, and I, I felt like I feel like we were in like the fifth row. So those close-ups of Salacious Crom screeching and his laughter just sort of embedded themselves in my memory. And Wicket was really amazing because it's like, here's a walking teddy bear who's like my size and everybody's relating to him like I would imagine I would be related to in that world. And the Ewoks were just, they were perfect for me at that age. Oh, I was perfect Ewok age. Like I, my one dream in life, like if someone had said when I was like seeing Return of the Jedi, you get one wish, it'd be like, I'll have an Ewok, please. Yeah. Like I, I, I'll keep him in the cupboard or something, you know. I'll, I'll, I've seen ET. I know the strategies. Dress him as a ghost or in drag. Um, while I'm at school, he'll get drunk. But yeah, the wicket. And and now I've got like a Persian cat who looks like a walkling, just living out my four-year-old fantasies of having an Ewok around the house. Yeah. No, I definitely. I think. Uh forget a lightsaber or the millennium falcon i probably would have said the same thing when i left that movie it's just he's just the cutest he's just the cutest yeah and I, I, you know i think i wonder if me hitting return of the jedi at the age i did and not having that animosity towards the ewoks sort of helped inoculate me from some of the cynicism that uh a lot of people who saw return of the jedi at older ages sort of got where it was like, oh, man, these Ewoks, this is the worst. And it's like uh, I've always been able to, I think, because of the Ewoks, embrace some of the sillier sides of Star Wars. I, it sounds good in theory. Like, that sounds <laughs> correct in theory. But I was, you know, went through the same thing. And I, I, I sometimes suffer quite a bit of cynicism with sometimes, stuff. sometimes vaccinations don't always work and sometimes you just get the <laughs> sickness that they're trying to prevent. Sometimes you've just got the disease so yeah. good. <laughs> but I always, I, I think that like loving the Ewoks and then, you know, I always talk about years later, I was at a, at a convention. I didn't have Star Wars friends in the 90s. I just go to these conventions by myself and I remember there was a panel and they mentioned Ewoks and people at the back of the room booed because you know, they didn't like Ewoks. And I turned around and this light went off in my head. I was like, oh, my God, people, some people don't like Ewoks. Yeah. No. I, had, I had not even considered that a possibility in this like reality that you could not like Ewoks. I thought it was a must. You know, I felt that same way about Phantom Menace for about a month. And then what happened after the month? Well, it was just uh, reconnecting with friends. I spent that month month just watching the movie and then reconnecting with friends that disliked it. And it was just like, wait a second, that was a new Star Wars movie. That was amazing. Like, what do you mean you didn't like it? Like at all? And uh, many of them didn't. Well, few things in fandom have divided than, you know, the prequels and, and the Phantom Menace. I, 
I don't know. I, I, I came to the conclusion the other day that it's not as bad as what people say and it's not as good as what people say. It's, it's, it's in the middle. And I, I, I always think it's like our build-up of waiting for it. Like we, we were left too long to imagine what the Clone Wars were like and stuff. And because we had no direction... Because at the moment, like when the films come out now, there's a, a film comes out, say in the saga movies, the, the, the film comes out and then we've got two years to imagine which way it's going to go. And, and then we get course corrected again with this is how it's going to go. And then we've got two more years to imagine how the story's going to yeah. go before episode nine. And after Return of the Jedi, we had 15 years just to go, woo! Yeah. I'm just imagining. And way too long because where we went and that's the big worry with the Han Solo film is that we've had so much time to think about what Han Solo is to us that we then have to worry that what it means to us also means to the people making the film and it corresponds because I, I think a lot of the time, you know, everyone's got this different view of what Star Wars is. And I think the Phantom Menace really splintered that view and was also just like this massive, like, emotion. Like, I remember getting asked, we, we you know, had a, a big thing where I grew up. You know, the whole town went out to see the Phantom Menace. Um, you know, I grew up in this small town and it was just like a giant town reunion in the cinema and then we went to someone's house afterwards and it was about three in the morning or something and someone said to me, oh, so, you know, you're the big Star Wars fan. What did you think? And I was just like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm like numb. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit confused and stuff yeah. like that. Well, and I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that uh, – and I think a lot of the people who are the biggest detractors from Phantom Menace have seen it once or maybe twice – and maybe that's part of their issue is that Star Wars had become over those 15 or 16 years such a comfortable place of familiarity that we'd gone back to over and over and over again. And we didn't realize how much that feeling of knowing every line, of knowing every detail, of knowing the, the names of Muff Tack and Cabe, like, added to our enjoyment of the movie. So when you see Phantom Menace and you don't know any of that information, it can be a little daunting at first. And, uh, you know, I find that the people who kind of complain the loudest about it are the ones who didn't go back to see it to try to get over that initial sort of confusion or or, or that emotion and just said, eh, I didn't like it. And they never tried to bring it into that fold of familiarity with the rest of the movies. Now, I'm interested. Have you ever watched, like, the, the Phantom edits or the Phantom edit of the phantom menace um i have not and i'll like for for two things one is because i think um on a technical level the editing is the best thing about phantom menace um and i really enjoy george lucas's style and rhythm of editing and uh and for two like i can't think of anything in that movie i'd want to lose so I've just sort of avoided them. It's the same way. I don't. I don't necessarily like the despecialized editions either. Um, I like most of the changes in the special editions, and I'm willing to put up with the changes I dislike for the picture quality and changes I do like. Like uh, 
the ending of Return of the Jedi now is just so much more emotional for me, and I really love it. And from from uh, Hayden, uh, from well, from Hayden to the new song to the way the, the oh, you're get you're you're getting on thin ice, Brian. That's fine. I can I can defend myself on thin ice or otherwise. Oh, um, but and uh, the just just that speaking, whole celebration. You're, you're, speak, you're, you're speaking ill of Yubnub. Yeah, come on. No, I'm not speaking ill of Yubnub. I love Yubnub. Um, but when you apply Yubnub to the freedom of the entire galaxy, like it makes sense if it's just Endor celebrating. Like it makes perfect sense. But when you apply that to the whole galaxy, it just doesn't fit as well. I, I'll never I, say anything cross about Yubnub. I think Yubnub could have been the hit that bound the galaxy together. If 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 Yubnub got pumped out in all these planets, there would be no first order. Yeah. Well, I I gotta say, watching that for the first time in '97, right, and not knowing it was coming, and hearing that music and seeing that celebration over in the the victory over the Empire across the galaxy for the first time. I think that was the first time the ending of Return of the Jedi actually brought me to tears. I think the ending's great, but but then you've got Yubnub. Yeah. Well, you know what? We still have it on all of our... Uh, I mean, I literally have... Every device in my possession now has the ability to play <laughs> Yubnub, so it's not, like, it's not like I'm going without. If you've got to lend me your toothbrush. <laughs> that would be... Uh, that would be. That's what they need. They need Yubnub toothbrushes, and the kids, when the song is over, will know to stop brushing their teeth. I would have some pretty pearly, toothy pegs, I believe, <laughs> if that was the case. The, the, I can I can deal with like I, I've got this theory that you know sometimes you've got to squ- squint through things. Yeah. That you know it's like yeah, this is not the proudest moment. To, uh, to be a fan of this, but I can squint through this. Ironically, the one thing I cannot squint through is those Ewoks blinking. It, <laughs> it, it horrifies me, dude. It, like, it, it scares me. See, it's, like, it, it's, it's like a bad dream. And I had the opposite effect. The first time I watched the Ewoks, they were fine, and, and I got used to the way they looked. But as I got older, I was like, it's creepy that they don't blink because they're like, uh, they're that crazy person who's looking at you. I don't want to say crazy because uh, that's, they're that person who's just really socially awkward and they've got their eyes wide staring at you the whole time as they're talking, uh, like, like they're, they're Stepford wives or something. And it always kind of got to me. And then so the blinking, adding it in actually kind of gave me a level of comfort with the Ewoks. It's like, okay, they're... They're mortal mammal beings that, uh, you know, need to uh, moisturize the insides of their eyes like the rest of us. You're a sicko. You're a sicko. This is... I don't know. The, it's, I, can, I can... The beak, the, the jabber, everything. It's, it's fine. It's... I, I just have to switch formats on... The blinking that that little Ewok means so much to me. No, I understand that. And and then conversely, when my cat like sometimes he like winks at me. I don't know. He does his one-eyed blink for some reason. I'm like, it's the cutest thing. It's the cutest thing. So context is everything. Yeah. The, the thing I really enjoyed about the the Phantom edit uh, 
was, and I know you're a big proponent of Jar Jar, and in the commentary, he actually does a, a, like an editor's commentary. He says that quite often at the end of scenes in uh, The Phantom Menace, like it will be a tense scene and then the tension will sort of be popped because Jar Jar always has to get the last word in. And uh, when you watch it, you know, with Jar like Jar Jar's, you know, still in it, but he sort of just kind of doesn't step on the scenes as much. Which what, what, what do you make of that comment? It seems like it's something that's designed for that younger audience, right? Where my daughter is too, and Phantom Menace is the only um, the only Star Wars movie I've let her watch so far, um, just because I want to wait till she's older to actually let her sort of soak in the story. And How old is she? Two? She, did you say she's two? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, Jar Jar is really the thing she loves the most. And she will sit through all those scenes about diplomatic maneuvering and taxation of trade routes and uh, all of the negotiation scenes and whatnot because she knows that Jar Jar is going to do something great at the end of that scene. And so it has a rhythm that's different for adults and different for kids. And so the Phantom Edit is, is it sounds like it's perfect for people who um, don't need that. Um, that rhythm, but but George Lucas is working at at levels where he's trying to 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 bring a different audience along. How did you react when like JJ made that joke about the Jar Jar bones? I you know I uh, yeah I mean I've been through a lot of years of people making uh, making jokes about Jar Jar, and it just kind of rolls off my back now, especially since everyone in their their cousin sends me them as soon as they happen. Like my social media just drowns. Like I couldn't even turn on my phone during the whole week that that Darth Jar Jar theory came out. Um, Lucky you. Yeah. Um, But uh, no, I mean like he obviously doesn't like Jar Jar and that's kind of his thing. I'm a big believer in the fact that like we all really like different things about Star Wars and Star Wars is so vast and broad that there are different things for all of us to like. Whether I mean, there are people whose only interaction with Star Wars will ever be the video games. And some people really dig the comics. And others, it's the novels. And some of those people, it's just the old Legends novels. And a lot of those people are in the new canon novels. And, you know, there's people who respond strongly to the cartoons. And there's some that respond to the prequels and some to the classic movies and some to all of it. And... JJ doesn't respond as well to the prequels and you know he knows what he likes better than anybody else cuz he's him. Yeah, I always find it weird when people can't comprehend that people like something. Yeah. No, I get that a lot with Jar Jar. Um where it's just like how could you possibly and it's like, well, there's some really interesting things about his character and what they were doing and in film history and Charlie Chaplin and then they're like you can't dare bring Chaplin into this and it's like I kind of just did. <laughs> He dares. Yeah, yeah. He's like I am not. I don't have this emotional reaction to what people like or dislike that, yeah. that some people do. You know, some people get very defensive and stuff. But a lot of times with like the Jar Jar jokes, it's just like like as a comedian, I get offended yeah. by hearing the same joke eighty seven times, and the person telling it to you thinks they've made it up. It's yeah, just like... I see that a lot in reading articles about 
Star Wars, invariably for like, I mean, even still, you'll see articles about The Last Jedi, and they'll include a gag about Jar Jar in it, or a dig at the prequels, and it's it's like, as someone who, who writes about Star Wars a lot, right, it's like, can't you get some new material? Like, we get it. You don't like the prequels because you're part of this generation that doesn't care about them, and, and you're alienating a lot of your audience. Like, uh, I got a son who's 15, and all of his friends, hands down, if you ask them who their favorite, uh, or what their favorite Star Wars movie is, to the, to, the, to the person, it will be Revenge of the Sith, because that's just the age that, they were the age I was when Return of the Jedi resonated with me. They were that age for Revenge of the Sith, and, and that's just their Star Wars. And, uh, you know, so if you're writing, if you're making those gags, you're, I don't think comedy should be safe necessarily, but if you're writing about Star Wars, you should at least understand that not everybody likes the same things. Yeah, I, I was doing a lot of radio stuff in Australia when The Force Awakens came out, and I remember talking to the host before we went on air, and he's like, oh, talk about how Jar Jar's not in this one, so it's going to be good. And I'm just like, nah, let's not talk about that. And they're like, oh, you're a bit sensitive. And I'm just like, it's just boring. Yeah. Like, it's just it's just hack. Yeah. I said it. I said it so bluntly. <laughs> I felt bad. Because <laughs> yeah. the guy's just like, oh, oh. But it's just like, come on, you're an FM radio host. You should have been very accustomed to getting called hack from yeah. uh, time to time. <laughs> Now, um, what about your background characters? Was was you know you mentioned Salacious Crumb and Wicket? Are they, are they your faves or? Um, you know, I really had I loved Max Rebo for some reason. Oh yes. Um, my first email address was like maxrebo at hotmail dot com. Um, <laughs> it's since gone, but but that's. Uh... I'll say you've lost all those date requests. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was, I was in junior high, I think when I did it, I don't know. I just really, he was a really great side character for me. Um, I really loved Biggs actually. Biggs was like a really great character, especially when the special edition came out. Um, again, that was one of those moments where George Lucas added in just enough context and then, you know, years of watching, like searching out for the deleted scenes of Biggs and Luke and stuff, like all of that added together, uh, to make, Biggs dying that first time on the big screen in 97, like one of the most emotional things ever where it didn't have that resonance before. Have you ever watched, have you ever watched Star Wars with that scene at the start put back in somehow? No, I haven't found a good way to do that. Um, I mean, I tracked down that CD that like behind the scenes, uh, you know, movie magic CD that they put out a while ago and I watched all of them and one of the really interesting things on that was they had like this cut of the cantina scene that was exactly how it was shot, like documentary style. And it was like 25 minutes long and the most boring thing ever. And that actually gave me the idea that deleted scenes are deleted for a reason. <laughs> you know, I kind of like, unless it's Star Wars and it's going to add to the canon... I usually don't check out deleted scenes anymore because because of that because it's like oh yep that's why that got cut. I mean even even on Star Wars I can I can feel that way like um, all of the deleted scenes in Empire Strikes Back or the extended takes of Han and Leia's sniping back and forth. There's a reason they got cut. Like yeah, they're, they're not good. 
There's a huge reason, I think, why it got cut. But I love seeing the the footage of Luke igniting the green lightsaber oh, for the first yeah. time. That that was great. I uh, mean, but I but I understand why it got cut. Oh know? yeah, because because you've got that you know the reveal of the new saber in the plan. You, yeah. you don't know what's what, what's going to happen, and so when that saber gets revealed for the first time, it's just like, um, I, full disclosure. I just talking about it. I got goosebumps. It is yeah. my fa- favorite thing that has ever happened in the history of man. Is is that guy grabbing that lightsaber after a sweet front flip? Yeah, no, that's. <sighs> I'm getting the chills now too. And and it would have taken all of that mystery away from that. Where you're left opening that movie, thinking like, is he turning to the dark side? He's doing this this uh, you know black costume thing and that's not very Jedi like and he's threatening people and there he's going to murder Jabba over and over and over again like that's his that's his biggest refrain and then you you have to think to yourself like how's he going to get out of this there's no way he doesn't have a lightsaber otherwise he would have used it on the Rancor and then but even if you would have had that scene where he puts the saber into R2 you'd be asking yourself like well why didn't he just use the lightsaber on the Rancor like it doesn't make any sense so no, I mean it, it's really smart for like a lot of uh, on a lot of different levels for uh, a few different scenes to just take that out, and it works so much better. When did you begin to put together? Like obviously, when George Lucas is making Return of the Jedi, he's, he's got Luke all in black, and there's the you know there's the hidden color key that. You know, during the the battle at the end of Return of the Jedi, it, it comes open and you can see its light underneath. But I think because when I saw Return of the Jedi when I was so young, I never really put that together at the start. How he was doing the choking thing, like I never, I saw Luke Skywalker as such pure good, and I guess I wasn't that. You know, when you're young, you're not that savvy to yeah. You know, it sort of goes all over your head. But because I started watching it that way, like I hear people talk about how, you know, it's 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 to put in doubt if he's going to go bad or good. But I've just cemented my goodness in there. Yeah. That I can't even. I can't even. Like I see what you mean, but I. For, I don't. I don't feel it. But me, I, I see. I see the math of it. For me, it was it was Attack of the Clones actually that made me like I didn't necessarily pick up on that until Attack of the Clones, and that's when you have uh, Anakin going through all of the same motions that Luke did in Empire, right? Where where mm-hmm. they he he doesn't listen to his masters, he goes off to help these attachments. Like I never understood in Empire why why Yoda was like, if you honor what they fight for, you will not go after them. You will not go to help them. You need to sacrifice them. And Luke, it, that doesn't sit well with Luke. And as a young man, I was like, of course, like, that makes perfect sense to me. I wouldn't leave my friends either. They're that important to me. But then when you see Attack of the Clones and you know where Anakin is heading and you see his slaughter of the Sand People uh, after the, the death of his mother, you understand suddenly why Yoda was like, don't go do that. And then when Return of the Jedi picks up again and Luke is, yeah, he's dressed in black and he is doing those things and Palpatine is starting to, like it really hit home after Revenge of the Sith came out because there's so many 
echoes of Revenge of the Sith in that last throne room scene where Palpatine's offering him essentially the same thing he offered Anakin. He just didn't have the time to lay the groundwork like he did with Anakin. And, uh, you know, I never thought Luke wasn't going to go, but he came really close when he was trying to, to, to kill Vader when he knocked him down and ran his saber through and cut off his hand and ran it through that, uh, that guardrail, which is like the only guardrail on the Death Star. <laughs> it's a very important one. Yeah. I like, I, but that's the thing. Like, you know, Sheev looks after himself. Yeah. If it's, if, if it's near a, a canyon that he's going to go past, let's, let's, let's get some guardrails up here. But, you know, if it's not one of his, then yeah, do what you gotta, man. Yeah. Do what you gotta. <laughs> hey, you guys, if you need new T-shirts for the convention season or just want to fill your cupboard with goodness, SteelWars.com is restocked with some of our most popular designs. The Ewok Tribute Yubnub, the controversial Your Snoke Theory Sucks, or the new favorite I'm with Snoke, plus the Luke Skywalker Tribute Have You Seen Him are all loaded up in the web store and every t-shirt is screen printed not digitally printed on the highest quality triple a all style apparel tube t these bad boys will not shrink and all come packed with a plethora of bonus stickers and a your snoke theory sucks lollipop check it out at steelwars.com luke in return of the jedi i i like I, I, I found his character because you know I'm I'm like such a Luke guy, such a Luke guy. That but in Return of the Jedi, I found his character very confusing when I was young. Yeah. But then, then trying to work out why the character was doing all those sort of like shaped how I act quite a bit, or I'd like to think so anyway. The whole deal with not striking down the emperor and not yeah. giving in to his hatred. Like when you're young or for me anyway, I, I, I was, I, I was like, I, I, I try to maintain my temper now, but when I was young, I was horrible at it. And when I was watching, I was just like, yeah, just kill him. Yeah. Just do it. <laughs> but then when you sort of get older and you sort of that situation in real life, do you know what I mean? Like, you know, even yeah. if you're, like, saying that your boss at work is hassling you, probably not the best answer is not to punch him in the face. You probably shouldn't do – you should, probably should, you know, w- work around this. But, yeah, it was that, – that whole – I don't know. There, there's, like, all these lessons in that throne room scene that I, I sort of think it, it taught kids stuff in the best way that they did not know they were getting taught. Yeah. Like all these little rules and stuff. And that's that's kind of why that scene specifically, Luke throwing the saber away, um, combined with a few other things that have sort of been in the canon since then, are what really primed me. Like, I, I was not surprised at all when the Last Jedi trailer came out and Luke said, no, you know? I wasn't surprised when he didn't show up to save Han. Um because if you look what brought Anakin to the dark side, it was going and saving his friend. And Luke Luke heard Han in distress, Han and Leia together in distress in Empire before they even made it to Cloud City. And the only reason Vader tortured Han 
on the other side of the galaxy was that he knew it would cause those ripples in the force to cause Skywalker to come to him. So Luke had to have sensed that Han was going to die. And we know that Leia sensed Luke, uh, Han's death. Luke probably felt that a lot harder. And for him not to go and save him speaks volumes about that nonviolence he took up. But he'll end up using the lightsaber, won't he? Please? I hope so. I mean, I hope that it's not in a way that's going... But wouldn't that be cool, though, if he went, like, full sort of, like, drunken master where he's like, I'm not fighting anybody, but he's just fighting everyone by not fighting them? That would be cool. But do you know what also is cool? Luke Skywalker with a lightsaber. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that no, one. I, don't, I don't argue with you. Both are completely valid choices. No, I would argue that one's far more valid than the other. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm sure, but but they're priming us, right? So it's the same thing as Return of the Jedi all over again. We're going to sit there and watch that movie and wait and wait and wait, and he's not going to pull out a saber, and he's going to get through three, four encounters, no saber, and then when he finally does pull it out and you see that green glow on his face, we're going to lose our minds. Oh, I would like to apologize to anyone that is in the room with me. During that time, <laughs> uh, no, I swear to God, Brian, I have not. Like, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, can you scream with joy and cry and jump on a seat? Like, it's you like know, I'm, I'm Tom fascinated. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is. <laughs> That is a good mentor for what I might be doing in the cinema. I sort of hope that if he does, and I really hope he does, like I know people say maybe he's beyond that. And it's like, that's great. He's beyond it. But I'm still a four-year-old kid. I'm not beyond it. I just want to see him with the lightsaber saving someone. I, yeah, I just, I'm fascinated to see how I'm going to handle that. I'm also interested to know how I'll handle him not using it. Yeah. But I'm not that interested in that scenario that I want to find out. You know what? Um, the way I imagine it will feel is why I left the theater for Return of the King just angry. Um, in the book, my favorite scene was always the mouth of Sauron, right? The mouth of Sauron was such an arrogant person, and, and the scene was brilliant in the book. And then you hear they, they hired Bruce Spence who, to play the mouth of Sauron. And Bruce Spence is great. And he was Tyon Medden in Revenge of the Sith and really love him. And then you watch the movie and they just skip over that whole scene. And it's like you just missed the best scene in this, in this whole thing. And from that moment forward, I, I just got angrier and angrier with the movie and just left pissed. And I feel like that would probably be what it would be like to some degree if Luke did not pull his lightsaber at all ever once in, in Last Jedi. And, and what a film series to skip over something. Yeah. It's yeah. like... You've, you've never shown the, restraint before. You've got nine hours, guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Chill out. Chill out. Um, but no, I think... I, I mean, I think we probably will, will see that. I think that's what everybody wants to see. Um, and what... He, 
what will be interesting is that knowing Ryan Johnson, Johnson is that if he does pick that path of non-resist or uh, that path of of nonviolent resistance, it's going to be a very difficult choice for him to pick up that lightsaber, and it's going to make that moment all the all the better, but also bittersweet is my guess. Hmm. Yeah, I, I know. Like I, I was lucky enough to interview Ryan at Celebration, and I know he's put a lot of thought, obviously, into Luke Skywalker, and he's a Luke Skywalker guy, and I know whatever he does, whatever Luke Skywalker does, that Ryan's put a lot of thought into it, and I have a lot of trust and, and a bit of a bit of a crush as well, so I might be romantically... Uh, um, you're idealizing be, him. Yeah, but I, I, I have faith that he'll be done well. But I don't want him to dwell on it for too long. Like yeah. I, do you know what I mean? I, I want him. I want whatever. I, I, don't, I don't want three things to happen to snap him out of it. Yeah. Just, yeah. just one solid thing, and then it's like, all right, let's go. Well, Four-year-old steel, begin to cry. Well, I mean, I did that just with him there on the rock in Force Awakens. He didn't even need to do anything but look sad, and I was, you know, four-year-old Brian was losing it. <laughs> oh, well, four-year-old steel was in his head thinking, he's not going to talk. <laughs> I've been had. It was the weirdest feeling. Because, you know, you know, at the end of Star Wars films, people don't talk. Yeah. There's always like two minutes of just music and 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 whatever, and I, I as it was sort of you know when it was going to all those shots, I was just like in my head, I was like, ah. Oh. I will say that's that that is brilliant and so annoying. Um, it it made all of that misdirection of having Luke or having Mark Hamill at the cast readings and very widely <laughs> publicizing those photos of him at the cast readings. It made that misdirection pay off very well. Because the whole time I'm going like, well, he was in that picture. He has to say something. And then you find out later, no, he was just reading the scene direction. See, <laughs> that was it. That was his only reason to be there. <laughs> what about, um, we, what, what is your favorite film, Brian? Um, the answer I sort of give flippantly is whichever one I'm watching. But if pressed, I think, I think it's Return of the Jedi. Me too. Me too. Um, you know, a lot of people say Empire, and I love Empire, but Empire is too depressing to be a favorite. It's well made, it's great, um, but there's just a darkness to it that when Star Wars for me has always been about um, uplifting myself, mm-hmm. and so Empire was always something to get through to get to those moments in Jedi that really... Uh, brought those emotions back you know like that victory over the empire there's there are very few feelings as tense as say like um you know that moment of into the trap right where uh that that piece of music for one is beautiful but them realizing that they've walked into this trap and having luke overcome all of this and han and leia overcome all of their trials on the 
the ground and, and having it all come together and then realizing that they've brought at least some freedom to the galaxy um, is overwhelming. And I just don't ever get that watching Empire. I automatically have to go right to Jedi to, to, to finish it. It's almost like Empire and Jedi are the same movie, actually. There's just an intermission between them, and it's the end of Jedi I care more about. Yeah, I'm such a... I don't know, I, I like, I'm such a weird, like, I, I think to a lot of people I come across as like this, maybe not in Star Wars, because I'm always pretty upbeat talking about Star Wars, even when, even when I'm like talking about things I don't like about it, I'm like, like, I kind of, I kind of enjoy, like, enjoy it, like, I enjoy yeah. the emotional up and down of like, love that, don't like that, like, yeah. uh, like, it, it's, um, but in like normal life, like sometimes I come across as you know a little bit gruff and stuff, but I'm such a sucker for the heartwarming ending. Yeah, like you know, you with you know everyone's a, a buzz about um, Ron Howard coming on. You know, it was it was a bit of a news story. I'm not sure if you picked up on that one, but he's I now have, the. Wait a second, Ron Howard's involved in Star Wars now. Yep, wow. it's pretty crazy, but. <laughs> The end of Apollo 13, when the son is in the school, like the, the, the military college or whatever it is, and they're watching the TV and there's a, like the, the minutes when the Apollo capsule is out of range. They don't know where, like it's sort of when it's going through the atmosphere, like the sensors can't pick up on it. And all the kids are around sort of, um, you know, just given the kid their their strength and, and their moral support. Like that bit and then when it comes through and they're all cheering, oh kills me every time. Killing me now yeah. recounting it to you. So I'm such a like that's like Return of the Jedi just like that. Like I like the happy ending. And I yeah. think I, I think Empire's the perfect downer movie. It's just like you know, the dude's just getting uppercut, uppercut, uppercut and he's trying to get back up. Like, you know, the, the well, that's the rebellion. And then yeah. in Return of the Jedi, it gets up and just, like, you know, knocks the evil Russian down. I'm confusing the Rocky uh, saga no, with the Star it, Wars it's saga. Apt, you know, in the first one, it's sort of a draw. And in the second one, like, Clubber Lang kills Apollo Creed, you know? Like, <laughs> or the Russian kills Apollo Creed. Clubber Lang didn't kill anybody. Maybe he should have. Um <laughs> But uh, but no, I mean I, I I get that exactly right. And but I and everybody just sort of yes, Empire's a better like it's just craft wise probably the best of the Star Wars movies, and it did a job that that none of the others could have done. But I also think that a lot of the credit for that goes to Star Wars too, right? Like Irvin Kershner didn't have to do any of the world building that George Lucas did, so that he could just dive right into that story. Like, mm-hmm. Could you imagine Empire being the first one out? Like it would have never made any money, and we wouldn't hear about Star Wars ever again. Yeah, and and I think it's easier to be a bummer than it is to be uplifting. Yeah, yeah. No, I think absolutely. Um, which is, I, I think maybe maybe some of the the thin ice that that Phantom Menace was skating over, right? Where yeah. where you're looking at something that that is supposed to be uplifting because no one realizes that you know everything's about to collapse, 
and you but but that's sort of the the beauty of it when you look back at it as political allegory right you don't know all these wheels within wheels are moving but they are you know the more we learned about exactly what was going on even before phantom menace that that sheev had in motion like you realize like they were screwed right from the get-go like no everybody there you know they're sitting there saying screaming peace at the end but they have no idea there's this naivete to it and uh and i think that that's why everybody was like the the title phantom menace what does that mean it's like everything is decaying from within and you don't even realize it and uh yeah we're all screwed <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Brian, you've really, you're making me laugh while depressing me. That is very sad. The, I've I've heard your touch upon your Jar Jar theories. Yeah. And, 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 and the, how perhaps the bullying of Jar Jar is maybe representative of, of bullying in real life. Yeah, I think, I think. People bullying Jar Jar really didn't understand the point of Jar Jar, and bullying people for liking Jar Jar is doubly so. Um, you know, Jar Jar's a character who's obnoxious uh, and misunderstood, and no one really wants him around because he's that awkward guy at the party who probably talks too loud and spills drinks on you. Um, but there's no reason to be a dick to that guy. Um, especially when he's going to be the one who gives you a ride home because everyone else is gone and drunk and he happened to not have been drinking or something. I don't know. Right. Like, like being nice to everyone is a good thing, but in star Wars, if you're nice to the people that you think, uh, you want to be the least nice to, it's going to, it's going to help you win the day. Right. Which is a really standard mythology trope. So you've got even like, like Obi-Wan in the movies, just like, uh, you're picking up more pathetic life forms and even Qui-Gon right off the bat's like, uh, you, you know, the ability to speak does not make you intelligent. Like even Qui-Gon's doing it, but Qui-Gon sort of realizes his mistake and, and pulls back and then helps Jar Jar and saves his life. Right. And that's sort of like the moral of the story. That would be like, that would be like empire's your favorite movie, but, uh, you know, your hobby is blockading cities and tearing friends apart, right? <laughs> like, you just don't, you just don't get it. Yeah, I, I think, like, I, I think that analogy is pretty good. But also, if, if I did have one of those friends, and I think everyone ends up with one of those friends, um, I, I would tell them to stop making fart jokes. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. That, that's, yeah, that, that, that. I, I think it's yeah. I think sometimes the just a, a snippet of a bit of his humor got cut out, and like I, I, I but it's it's and, all, and, and, it's ring think, theory, and, right? The only other fart joke in the the series happened in Return of the Jedi. What was the Return of the Jedi fart joke? The Jabba goes like he, there's this big belching fart kind of thing, and he that's when he like looks at the camera and goes, whoa. What? Yeah. It's there, man. Go back and look. So what makes the noise? I think Jabba does, and he surprised himself by it. <laughs> 
Oh man, I'm I'm in for a big night. Yeah. On the on the on the digital thing. But no one What's it called? Uh, the TV. Yeah. <laughs> but, the digital thing. <laughs> but uh I'm from Australia. You know the uh the fart joke, you know, it, it it's not for me. But humor's so subjective though anyway, you know, like you there's a there's a Kurt Vonnegut book and I don't know how familiar with Vonnegut you are, but it's called um Galapagos. And the entire uh the entire like the book is framed around the fact that humanity has evolved into nothing but these like weird sort of sea porpoises a million years from now and the only constant of comedy from now to then is that uh a fart is hilarious. <laughs> And Kurt Vonnegut somehow sells this entire book. The entire thesis of this book is that A, evolution is weird, and B, are fight, and farts are always hilarious. And so I can't begrudge anyone trying to get away with a fart joke. <laughs> They're not for me, but they are for somebody. They are a staple of comedy somewhere. Brian, that is one of the deepest defenses of Jar Jar Binks ever. I, well, you know, things just happen on the fly when you're like, okay, fine, the fart joke. And it's like, well, here's the thing. I don't even oh like God. think about the stuff I'm saying. It just comes out. I don't know. You must have been a real dynamo in uh, debating. Oh, you have no idea. I won so many trophies. <laughs> That's so not what a you, joke either. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. I, I love it. I love a good debate. I always, I, it always bums me out when people like, even if you like, you disagree, but it's like you're using that as your defense. That's pathetic. I could, yeah, I could, I could defend against what I believe in better than that. Yeah, I was gonna say it's just like comedy's just subjective. What's gonna make me laugh? You know, like not a lot of people find Woody Allen as funny as I do, but that guy's hilarious to me. That's why his movies make no more than twenty million dollars, though. But he keeps making them. Yep. Keeps making them. Now, what's your favorite scene in all the saga? Um, Luke unmasking Vader. Ooh. Luke unmasking Vader. Um, and it's sort of tied with Luke on the gantry going to the, uh, the AT-AT when he surrenders on Endor. That scene between the two of them where, where you know he's asking him if he's finally accepted the truth and things like that. The father-son dynamic is really what worked for me and resonated with me because that's really the mythology I needed as a kid to think that one day I could I could uh, fight my dad and then take the mask off and realize that there really was a good person under there. And so for me, Luke unmasking his father is probably the most emotional and important moment in all of Star Wars for me. Hmm. So... Do you see the, like the Phantom Menaces? How like your dad was a happy little kid at one point? Um, I mean, I see that for Anakin. I don't think my dad was ever happy personally, but that's just me. Um, but I think that's what's fascinating about it as an adult, sort of detaching from those personal feelings that I had as a kid to actually look at it and and see that anyone has the potential to be that horrible person. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that that probably is what happened with most people. Right. I don't think anybody's inherently evil. Maybe Sheev is. Um, or maybe they're just so stupid that they 
become evil no matter what. I don't know. But uh, seeing such a good person, I think that's why it was so important and fascinating to see Anakin at eight to say, like, no, there's no way this kid is going to turn into Darth Vader, which is hard for a lot of people. I think that's hard for people to swallow, that they want Vader to be this horrible person from the get-go. They want him, like, torturing loath cats, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer style, um, because it's difficult to, to look at their own kids and say, if I don't do this right, you could be Darth Vader, right? I think that's a really challenging thing for people to wrap their head around. And they don't want to confront that. And that's why I think Phantom Menace is partially so important for that reason, that that you could have a great kid and raise them uh, really well to that point. But if you start doing the wrong things and people start giving them the wrong ideas, they're going to end up, you know, murdering the entire order they belong to. Ironically, also a theme in Ryan Johnson's Looper. Yeah. That... um about the the boy that grows into a, a horrible thing, but it's just because of an event that kind of altered him. Interesting. And it's also really, um, that's the theme of, although it's problematic now, but uh, the killing joke, right? You know, Joker's entire thesis is that one bad day can turn anyone into someone like him. And, you know, we see that with Darth Vader over a much longer period. I'm always shocked by people who say, like, "Uh, his turn was so quick. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. And it's like his turn started the day he left his mother. You know? Yeah. That's as slow a turn as you can get. And Palpatine didn't leave him a choice. Like, that's. We make horrible decisions in snap moments, right? And Palpatine gave him a choice. You have to save me now, or you won't save Padme. And what kind of choice is that for someone who loves their wife? Of course he turned as quickly as he did. Samuel L. Jackson had, had always been a great guy to him. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, Mace Windu was his buddy. I can't believe he did that. Um <laughs> No, that's that one of the things I love about Clone Wars the most, especially with how things shook out with Ahsoka. Like, Anakin had every reason to hate them, you know? And it just doubles down when they're like, hey, we didn't want this on record because this is really dodgy, but we need you to spy on your buddy. <laughs> like, there's no confidence there whatsoever. Yeah, it's... um, I, I can... Mace Windu should have expected to lose an arm, really. Yeah. The at minimum. Now, um, let's let's talk about Full of Sith okay. and and the origin story. So, like, how did you? You know, I, I sort of, you know, I've been a fan forever, and I would, 
you know, listen to, you know, when podcasts were invented as soon as Star Wars ones came out, would, would start listening to. And, and, and it sort of, it seemed like Full of Sith from a time had just been there. <laughs> like, um, like, like it, it seems like it's one of the, the, the legacy, can you remember a time before this podcast started? So I'm, I'm interested to how... How how were you a podcaster before time, Brian? Explain this to me. Um, you know, I'd been doing a little bit of podcasting. Um, I was doing – there's a, a podcast that I used to sort of do some stuff with called the Geek Show Podcast. And they're, they just sort of get drunk and talk about nerdy stuff. And I was talking about Star Wars a lot on their show. And um, that opportunity just sort of uh, wasn't as available as it had been before. And the Force cast had ended. You know, it was just sort of there was a big drama there. And then the announcement about Disney happened. And so I called up Mike and said, hey, we should do our own show. And so the announcement happened in October of 20. Um, that was 2013, right? Uh, oh, I, I'm, I'm 20, not good at that sort of 2012, thing. October, whenever that was, our first show happened that January. Really? Uh, yeah. I, I I would have thought it was like way before that. Well, you think about like it probably would have, but it, it felt like I was always sort of hesitant to get into Star Wars podcasting. I'd done a lot of guesting on, on other podcasts, but when the Force cast left, there wasn't really a whole lot of – there weren't any of the, the podcasts around at that level because I think everybody just thought that Forcecast was filling whatever need there was for a Star Wars podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe people didn't real, realize there were different flavors of Star Wars podcast, and but I was never sure that there would be enough to talk about on a week-to-week basis about Star Wars unless something new and huge was happening. And, uh, you know – it's not like Clone Wars had as big of an audience as the movies. And then when they made the announcement that they would be making more movies, it was like, well, maybe we could try to talk about Star Wars every week. And, uh, you know, I'm alarmed at how many shows we have to just end and say, like, well, there's way too much to talk about. <laughs> and and, and right. we've been doing it every week since since the January after the sale without without fail. Um. So we've been around for a while, but it seemed, I think for a lot of people, it just seemed like we showed up when no one was around because it was during that, that absence of force cast before they got a new, um, they got a new cast and the previous hosts went on to do their show. And so there just wasn't anything at that level. And since I'd been covering Clone Wars online for so long, since the beginning of that show, really, like I'd already had an audience and maybe you just imagined that my voice was coming out of the articles I was writing or something. Yeah. I, it just seems like, you know, the full sift, it just seems like a real, I, I guess a, a, along with the force cast, like a real sort of long time legacy uh, show, which I guess is a credit to the impact that you've had. Oh, I, thank you. I mean, all we do is yak about star Wars and, try to do it as positively as possible but uh and i don't mean positively about uh in in that uh hey we're going to be cheerleaders for everything star wars if if you think that's the case listen to our shadows of the empire episode um Aww. but 
no, I mean positive in in trying to make fandom a better place, to make it feel more inclusive, to make it feel like everyone's welcome at the table and um, full of Sith, actually, I think is part of the reason I actually took up that mantle of Jar Jar. I was kind of ambivalent about him before the show. And then I started getting into like online culture and realizing how things were. And I realized there were a lot of Star Wars fans who were Jar Jar. You know, there's a lot of Star Wars fans who are that sort of misunderstood, bullied um, person, right? That, that, and everyone's treating them like Boss Nass would have rather than Qui-Gon. Yeah, I think you make a good point that everyone has felt like they're maybe like pulling a Jar Jar in this situation. Yeah. Like when you're just like, oh, I just feel awkward. This isn't, I'm not, I'm not clicking here. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm Jar Jarring the hell out of this. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a definitely something I, I get. I, I think most people. Most people that are somewhat aware, self-aware, would have felt like. Yeah. No, and and I think um, I think I've learned a lot about uh, about the podcast. Yeah. So so yeah, we started in 2013, and the sale was announced in 2012. Which in Star Wars land, like, we're moving so fast that that does seem forever ago. I guess. Mm. It, it is hard to remember when you weren't looking forward to Star Wars films every year. Yeah. Well, and I would, I would, you know, when they made that Disney announcement, I would have been happy with Star Wars films every three years, you know, but now I want them every six months. Uh, like, this is just not fast enough for me. It is, actually. I'm fine. I'm, wait, I'm, 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 I'm waiting patiently, but admit it. If Han Solo were, or Last Jedi were ready now, and by all accounts it'll be ready by next month, wouldn't you rather see it now than December? No. Really? December. I like I like the I like all the lead up. I I like No, I love the lead up too, but the, it gets to the point by 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 the time December happens it's just like I need this movie in my eyeballs now or I'm going to be pissed. Yeah, but I like I looking forward to when they have the t- the the like the full trailer come out. Yeah. And then and then the toy release and then the this and the that. Like I love like the the Force Awakens year was just I I just enjoyed it so much. Yeah. Like all the, you know, you you go to that's how you know we just, you know, just came out that they they're not going to have anything at Comic-Con and that's that's a bit of a a, a kick to the gut because I was you know whether I could organize to get around it or not, I was looking forward to camping on the grass. Yeah. And no, Hall H camping is the worst, though. Have you done it before? Yeah, I've done it. Okay. I, I, I did it for um, The Force Awakens, and it was actually one of my the, my favorite nights of my life. Like, you know, I made. I would, that's where I sort of met. I, that's where I met Star Wars friends. I didn't have any before um, I got in that line, pretty much. Which is, I guess. We need more lines in Star Wars than I guess, because most of my Star Wars fran- friends I met in line for Phantom Menace. Like, I didn't have any other. I had one, and then I met everyone else in line for Phantom Menace or in line at Celebration. or I guess Hall H, I never actually had to wait in line in Hall H. I didn't get to go the year Force Awakens was there. Um, 
because I'd been to like 15 San Diego's and they were just wearing me out. And uh, it was just, it was rough. And every time I'd had to sleep out for Hall H previous to that, it was just like nothing there blew my hair back enough. So I can imagine Hall H feeling worth it when Star Wars is at the end. But before then, it was just the Hall H Star Wars Spectacular where Steve would get up and say, hey, look at this new uh, bit of merchandise we've got. And um, and th- and that was that. Or when Clone Wars came out, Clone Wars actually kind of reinvigorated that, but there was still no need to camp out overnight for it. Mm. Uh, but Force Awakens, definitely. I can see that. Yeah, like this year... You know, they've got things that I'm interested in, like the, um, you know, they're going to have a big Stranger Things panel. And I, you know, absolutely love the show, would love to see those, you know, everyone in real life and stuff. But it, like, I'm not camping out for it. Yeah. Well, you can camp out at D23. Well, I, I, I might well have to be. But I just, yeah, the camp out at San Diego for that Force Awakens one. Like, I had friends that liked Star Wars, of course, but not ones that I would feel like I was pushing the friendship with if I was, you know, going to go too deep into Star Wars. And I remember getting in the line and, um, you know, Jason and Randy from Now This Is Podcasting and the guys from the Star Wars Underworld, which I, I didn't know any of them, and they didn't know I did a podcast or anything. They were just like... Yeah, man, if you're by yourself, just get in, get in with us, hang out. And I remember after a few hours, they were just having Star Wars conversations. And I was like, oh, this is unbelievable. Yeah. I can't, I can't believe these, like, you know, normal people are just having these conversations about Star Wars. It, like, it, it seems weird for me to be blown away by now, but I actually remember, like, being on the grass just, like, going... It's so weird. They're all talking about Star Wars. This is awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's so, around when you started getting into Star Wars podcasting, right? Yeah. I, I think I was on to like episode four or something like that of, of the podcast. So I was sort of trying to work out, you know, what it was going to be about or, you know, what how, how, how I could not talk about news per se, yeah. but talk, talk about Star Wars forever. And um, a lot easier than I thought. Yeah. No, it's it's weird. We always get a lot of feedback on our shows when we don't talk about the news, where people are like, man, everybody color- covered X controversy. I'm so glad you talked about Ewoks this week. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I must admit, I'm, I'm a bit tapped out on an Han Solo discussion for the time oh, being. Oh, me too. That was, wow. I was so... Uh, I was so glad I got to change gears completely for the episode this week. I got to interview the composer from the Freemaker Adventures. So the music of the Lego show is about as far from Han Solo controversy as I think you can get and still be topical. Right. I I was, and I don't blame anyone. Do you know what I mean? You can't blame everyone for talking about it, but I must admit, I was just like, Oh, I need something else. Actually the, the force center had done a, a book review of Empire's End, and I'm never up to date with the books. Uh-huh. So I al- so I always like once I finish the book, it's like a treat that I can go listen to everyone's reviews now. Like I can go back in yeah. time and, and listen to their reviews. So that was sort of my uh, my palate cleanser. But how did you get the squad together? Like, was the original like so, I, I don't think it was Amy and Mike at the start, or so. Um... Mike, 
Mike was the Mike was always the first person because I didn't know how to produce a podcast, and Mike is sort of like podcast royalty in that um, he's been podcasting since there's been podcasts on a bunch of different shows, and he was on a really big one called the Mediocre Show, and uh, he was doing another like an interview show where like uh, you know he was talking to people like. Uh, it was called Obviously Oblivious, and he was just sort of Mike doing interviews with people that were sort of out of his league. So, like, the, the episode I listened to was him interviewing Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I was like, oh, this guy's hilarious. And he, I'd met him once at an event, and he had Star Wars tattoos over all over him. So we kind of hit it off over Star Wars, and so I was just like, I need someone who will help me produce this because I'm rubbish at all of that. And uh, so he was the first person I called, and then... Um, Concetta Parker, who was the longtime publicist for Rancho Obi-Wan, um, I was sort of talking to her about wanting to do a show, and she's like, well, who did you have in mind um, to co-host? And I, was, I felt really strongly that Mike and I could not do a show if we did not have at least uh, one female voice on the show. Um, and so we talked about a couple of ideas, and then Parker... Uh, Concetta said, well, what about me? And so we went with her. And so we had Steve on for our first show, Steve Sansweet, who she was working with, Rancho Obi-Wan. And um, we went for about a year, and Concetta just was going through some stuff and said, I'm going to have to back off the show after a year. And then that's when we brought Amy in. And uh, Amy was great, and we had Amy on the show for two years, and Bobby was kind of coming in and out. Bobby was somebody that Mike had known through his podcasting, and Bobby had been on the radio in Portland for a long time. I am fascinated. Bobby Roberts and you seem like such different people. Ah, we are. We are so much. Like you are, you are very like you seem so placid and uh, like someone that would mediate like disagreements between people. And then Bobby, much like I sometimes feel like I get a bit too much enjoyment out of it, just likes to like, I'm going to set this on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bobby's very much like that, but I think Bobby and I found that we could agree to disagree in a way that's productive and not that sort of, uh, you know, stamping your foot sort of agreeing and disagreeing people tend to do in like say politics um and so and i think part of it is that bobby and i both have a lot of like like and respect for each other so we could get into arguments and it was never personal um and bobby and i have gotten into a lot of arguments on the show but uh um yeah no i never regretted having him come on the show even when i disagreed with him vehemently um yeah. Yeah. But a lot of the time, like, you know, when you, you know, I, sometimes people get in arguments like online about Star Wars and it's, and it's just over opinion. Yeah. Like it's such a, like it's just over some, I don't know, just silly, like prequel or no, original trilogy yeah. or something. And it, it's, it's sort of more, I don't know. It's it's the bigger picture things. I think are the things worth arguing over. That, yeah. like the the bigger issues of the world and how they are injecting uh, into Star Wars is sort of like where I would draw the line. Apart from, 
I think Kitster's the the greatest character that was ever invented. Sort of like like that sort he, of. He is pretty like, wizard. That never caught on. I thought that was going to catch on in in the late nineties. Wizard kids were going to start spitting wizard on the schoolyard. But, you know what? But I no. think they do, depending on the group of kids. My kids do, but then again, they've got me as a dad, so they're just <laughs> screwed anyway. But they do it sarcastically, like they're making fun of me when they say it. Like um, my son will just yeah, he'll he'll deadpan that like yeah, that's that's wizard, as though he's he's as though it's a joke at my expense. Now, did you guys have like a big episode or uh, an event, like like something that really sort of propelled you, um, you know, the listenership, or was it just sort of like a gradual, just we steady as she goes? We started pretty strong and kind of stayed strong, and just kind of. I, I think part of it was that Forcecast wasn't wasn't out right. Mm-hmm. Forcecast wasn't coming out, and and their next show had not started yet. Um, and and by accounts, I heard that they sort of scrambled to put together some shows quickly after our show came out because we just sort of took over a lot of that audience because there wasn't anything around at the moment. So I think we just came, we kind of hit lightning in a bottle when we came out, and it was just the right time, and we remained consistent. And um, you know, it has grown. Uh, I think one of the big things that really helped our listenership more than anything was, f- for whatever reason, having Sam Witwer on. The first time we had Sam on, it was just, uh, you know, we, we, we quadrupled our downloads and we'd already done some really good download numbers. Wow. Um, so Sam is always a draw for some reason. Um, the shows that tend to do the best now over the long term are shows that don't, like... We try to do a lot of shows that aren't just topical um, as or like as far as timing goes, but you can go back and listen to them at any time. So whether it's that Shadows of the Empire episode or um, some of the interviews we've done or um, our Force Awakens and our Rogue One like sort of reaction shows are always big because I think there's always somebody who's poking around going like, hey, I'm looking for something that... Uh, is somebody that's reacting to this the way I am right now. Cause it's always somebody's first time, whether they're like, they've been living in a cave on Dagobah for the last two years and haven't seen it and just want some reactions too. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I tend not to focus on that stuff a lot. Like if we can have five listeners and I would still be doing the show because it's my outlet to talk about star Wars with people. I like talking uh, star Wars with at a level that I don't always get in person with people because, um, you know, not everybody's as into star Wars as we are. Heathens. Heathens. Nah, they're fine. They just haven't discovered it yet. (laughs) I always get people apologizing to me. They don't, and I'm like, I don't care. It doesn't, I don't like, it doesn't affect me if you don't watch the films or not. You apologizing to me, like, this is the bit that I don't like. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty normal apart from that. Apart from I spend my weekends trying to work out what way to set up my um, 40-year-old bits of plastic. I'm just like you. Yeah. I'm exactly. just like In you. In every way. <laughs> 
Hey guys, while this episode of Steel Wars is soon sadly going to come to an end, there are hundreds of Steel Wars episodes online for you to enjoy. If you haven't caught up, may I recommend episode 134 with Mike Quinn, the fascinating man behind Knee and Numb in both Return of the Jedi the Force Awakens, and The Last Jedi, with some fascinating tales from the set of all those films. Also, if you want to talk The Last Jedi, head to episode 131.3 with my one-on-one -on -one interviews with the cast. Kathleen Kennedy, Ryan Johnson, John Boyega, Kelly Marie Tran, and Daisy Ridley. You can access them all from SteelWars.com, iTunes, or wherever good podcasts are downloaded. Now, I have often read your Rebels reviews mm -hmm. and been stunned at, at how much you enjoyed them more than me. <laughs> I had... Um... What is it about Rebels you didn't enjoy? I, my, if, if there was one thing that if someone said you can change one thing, I don't want Ezra ever again to learn that what's really important is family. I, I, I feel like I've, I've seen that last minute of the episode too many times. That would be my big takeaway. Yeah. I don't know, like for me, having teenagers is teaching them the same lesson over and over and over again because they're not biologically wired to understand anything yet. Um, so I think that's just him being a stupid teenager. I don't know. I, I, that's what I chalked it up to. Um, and I, that, that, like, I, I have to say, that's a pretty good defense. <laughs> but, but now I just don't want kids. <laughs> like, have you met teenagers, though? I mean, that's you have to tell them the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and, and I mean, that's that's totally valid. Uh, that's a totally valid criticism. I don't have any qualms with that. I guess the thing that I loved about Rebels so much was what it was adding to the mythology, not so much the way the the lesson for Ezra wrapped up at the end. You know what I mean? Like, mm. like... Uh, I think, like you look at you look at uh, Twilight of the Apprentice, right? And those two episodes, I don't like. I would put those two episodes up against the movies as far as um, tone and emotion and quality. It was just really good storytelling, and I don't think you could have got there without some of those with without the episodes that brought us there. You know what I mean? So mm. while, while a lot of people were saying like, oh, this episode's filler and it's like, no, it's it's uh, it's us learning things about this character and this character because I'm sure it'll come into play later. And more often than not, that was the case. Um, I still don't know what the greater purpose of uh, Mart Matten was, but uh, I mean, that whole crew was, I guess, maybe to humanize Sato or something. I'm not sure. I thought mm. for sure they were going to be in that final battle with Thrawn, and that's why we were watching that episode with them. But all the other episodes did play into that, whether that was Wedge or Mon Mothma or whoever else, you know. And I, you know, that Wedge or AP5 even, people were sort of annoyed with him. Like his episode was filler, and it's like, 
he just became a great side character. Yeah, I, I don't know. I always find people react to that filler tag a bit too strongly. It's like like, like, John, like it's sort of like how people say people get offended when that like Star Wars. Oh, you know. It, the force awakens it's it's very similar to star wars yeah. and people react to that really strongly it's like yeah well it is but that doesn't mean it's bad like yeah no that... and, and, and sometimes there's a rebels episode where it's like yeah that didn't really progress stuff much yeah like I, and and I, I like i think maybe calling it a filler episode like i think people react to it too strongly i think for me um most people who drop like, oh, that was a filler episode are the same sorts of people that walk out of a movie and say, I don't know, I didn't like it. It was The characters weren't developed. And it's it sort of just turns into a buzzword that they're not sure what it means and probably couldn't mm. defend it if you got into it, but it sounds like it should be a valid criticism. You know? What do you mean there's no character development? That character went through this, and you learned this about him, and that wasn't even on screen, but you knew that about them, you know? Um, so it, it just seems like it's it's one of those things that, that people just say. Um, you know, you heard a lot about that in Clone Wars, too, but there were whole arcs like that, like the, uh, the Sunny Day in the Void episodes with D-Squad and Colonel Muber Gascon. And... Uh, yeah, they were filler, but I wouldn't trade those episodes for anything. They were hilarious. Not everything has to have... I, this is the same reason why I think a lot of people were disappointed in the prequels because it wasn't three movies of Order 66. Yeah, I, I, I always think that... I don't know. that, that If they just started the storyline when... Like, if, if so, Anakin was the same actor the whole way through. Yeah. Not not and, and and that's not a judgment on who like everyone's acting, but I just if like it just felt like when they got to Revenge of the Sith, I always thought the last twenty minutes was just like, oh god, we've got to get all this in. Like it didn't seem that the, the pacing was right. Like it seemed a bit too like and this and that and and you go here and I'll go here. Whereas, like if they just if Anakin was found to be a pod racer at say age 15 or or 14 or something. And just the timeline was shifted a little bit. I I felt like it would have flowed. But but Phantom Menace makes that moment in empire all the better where, where Yoda tells Anakin like, no, you know, he's too old to begin the training. And then when it, it, then you think back to empire and go like, wait a second. Like he told Luke, he was too old. How old did you have to be? And then when we get to Anakin, it's like, no, even he was too old. That kind of feeds into that idea that Luke is going to turn to the dark side because Anakin got it too late. Luke got it way too late. Um, I don't know. Maybe there were different ways to do that. And and maybe they would have been valid choices. But, you know, we got what we got. And more Star Wars is always better than less. True that. True that. Would you swap... Those Nima Gascon episodes. You said you wouldn't trade them for anything in the world. Would you trade them for Luke Skywalker igniting the green? Probably. That's not in the world. That's the galaxy, though. So I have a loophole. (laughs) 
That was that was the most tense moment of the podcast ever. <laughs> um, we're, we're okay. We're going to get through this. Okay, I'm very happy. I'm very happy. What do you make? Like you know, I I, I read your reviews and sometimes I, I'm just like, wow, that is that is so positive. And I and I think like when you when something's frustrating you and then someone else is loving something, I think sometimes yeah. that can create more frustration. Yeah. How do you feel as someone that, that's, you know, and I've seen you tweet that you feel like Star Wars is get, getting made for you because yeah. you're, you're, you're just enjoying the ride so much. What do you think when, you know, like, whereas, like, I, I, I sort of see my criticism of Star Wars is, is, is pretty level-headed. Yeah. And, and then there's other people that are just like, you need to go for a walk outside. Yeah. Um, well, you know, you know. But, but how do you, like, do you sort of go, why are you wasting your time not liking stuff? Or no, how do you I see that? The reason I think it, the reason I kind of say, like, I feel like it's made for me is that all of the things, like, I really, after I kind of got into Star Wars and wanted to make movies and got into that professionally and being a storyteller, I started going into the things behind Star Wars, right? And Filoni told me once in an interview that if you wanted to learn how to make Star Wars, you got to learn about all the stuff behind it. So I devoured Kurosawa and Hitchcock and all of these other kinds of film influences. So when Clone Wars was starting and we got a, you know, we got an episode that was a remake of a little scene, uh, Kurosawa noir film called stray dog that I loved. And it was like, wow, this is made just for me or an episode, uh, the, the episode with Jar Jar where he's, uh, where he's uh, impersonating Boss Leone, and it was called Shadow Warrior, and it was sort of a remake of Kagamusha, which was the Kurosawa film that uh, that that George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola produced. Or we saw Senate Spy, which was a remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. Right, like it's made for me, in that all of the references and touchstones that that I love are represented here, skinned as Star Wars. Right. And you see that influence through Rebels. Um, you know, I remember when the Twin Sons episode came out. Right. And everybody was like, man, Obi-Wan Kenobi did. You know, it was just like two moves and then Maul was dead again. And it was a letdown and they should have had a much bigger fight. And it was like, no, 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 no. Here's all this seven samurai and here's all of the the film things behind it. And here's why they did that. And here's why it works thematically and for this and that. And that's that's kind of what I mean about it's made for me in that it just pushes all of the buttons across all of my fandoms, not just star Wars. And so it's not that I want people to like it the same level I do, but I mean, the reason I did that cinema behind star Wars column um, on star Wars.com for so long is that I wanted it to be that gateway into those other things for people. Not that they needed, not that they needed it to enjoy star Wars, but I thought that if they had that background, maybe they could enjoy it more. Hmm. Yeah, sometimes like like I love all the you know, the the influences of Star Wars and, and, and when you see, you know, you sort of you know, even you know, simple things like the chariot race from Ben Hur or whatever that's yeah. in, you know, the Phantom Menace and stuff. But sometimes I, I think people I don't know, they cause it's a reference that's enough for them. Yeah, like do you know what I mean. Like a lot of times with, you know, and and I, and I agree and disagree with 
you know, the the ring theory as it goes along. And the, I think the main thing I disagree with is it's the importance that some people put onto it, where it's just like, okay, that's a poem and stuff, but I didn't go to the cinema to watch a poem. <laughs> I, 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 went to, I went to see it, like, that, to actors to get to do a few takes and then to see that best one. There's... And sometimes I think, like, the the references and all that sort of stuff are placed too high. Like that's, that's the, that's like the little sugar. Well, I think part of it is that the references are supposed to be a, a cinematic shorthand to pack more story, right? Like George Lucas is always trying to pack as much story as he can, which is why like, um, you see the searchers play out in attack of the clones. Right. And if you have it oh, working, oh, out, I, I, I... I don't know that. Can you go into that one, The Searchers? So The Searchers was a John Wayne movie um, with Natalie Wood. And John Wayne is sort of sort of this evil Confederate cowboy who's uh, totally anti-Native American. And the Native Americans burned down his, his uh, family's homestead and his niece is taken by these Native Americans. And uh, he goes off. And basically spends the next decade hunting after his niece and tracking down this Native American tribe and exacting this horrible revenge, like literally scalping the lead Native American. And it gets to the point where he almost wants to kill the niece because she's been so assimilated by them. Right. And it comes to this really tense standoff. And that's sort of the story. I mean, the sand people were always stand-ins for the native Americans in that Western frontier setting for Tatooine. Right. And the story of, um, Klieg Lars is that his wife had been taken in this way and he went out and looked after her and spent that month doing it, but didn't have the drive to do it until he found her. Right. So he goes back. And so Anakin is the, the evil uncle come back from, the frontier to do this. And there's shots um, when he's invading the camp, that beautiful shot of the starlit sky with the, that, uh, that rock that he sort of climbs down and jumps down mm-hmm. is a mirror of a shot in the searchers where John Wayne does the same thing before he raids the camp and scalps this man in this horrible moment of revenge. Right? So if thematically you're familiar with the searchers, it, adds all of that meaning to Star Wars, right? Like you're able to cross-apply all the feelings that that movie made you feel thematically and bring them in here. And I think that's part of why I have less of a problem with Attack of the Clones than most people is that like there's a lot of movies like that working in there. Or in Revenge of the Sith, like there's moments from 2001 or, um, you know, things like that. Um, That's... They're 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 deeper than references when you're able to um, bring more to the movie with them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now I hope when John Wayne gets down there, he he scalps the women and the children too. He wanted to kill the entire tribe. Yeah, that was the good for him. That good was, for him. But but that's also that's that's supposed to be a clue to us, right? Too like if we're familiar with the Searchers and we know that that uh, John Wayne's Ethan character is a bad guy, and here's our hero doing the same things that a bad guy would do, that's problematic. I tell you what's problematic <laughs> is 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 Padme's reaction. Ah, oh, the women, children too. Oh well. 
Well, let me let me ask you this: If you were in a situation where um, your mother had been kidnapped and your wife was going with you to go after her, and you went into this den where it's this, you know, whatever. Um, these sort of inhuman creatures who aren't necessarily humanized in any meaningful way, you know, think about, think about the Western frontier. If this were a Western and you were, you know, your mother was taken by native Americans and you have all of the cultural standards and norms of, of that society. If you went and said, I saved my mom or I tried to, and I killed them all. Like that's just a thing that happens. That's not even a big deal. And here she is, she loves him, and she sees him in pain. And the only thing she sees of him is, like, him carrying his mom's body back. And, you know, I, I feel like if someone came to me carrying their mother's corpse back by hand, like, this is something that they had to do themselves, and they said, like, I lashed out because of this, I'd probably cut them some slack, right? A, for one, because maybe I wouldn't know if they would aim that toward me. Or B, because obviously they were hurting. <laughs> you, totally, you totally won me over, but then you threw in the like, oh, yeah, and also because <laughs> well, no, they just I mean, killed the women and children. But, I mean, like, think about that. Like, Padme, I don't know, like... Oh, no, you make a, comp- like the, you make a compelling uh, defense of her reaction, for sure. Well, Padme is hyper empathetic, right? Like that's if she had a force power, it's this hyper empathy and it's this need to do um, to take care of people. Right. That's why she goes into politics at 14. And I think her attraction to Anakin is that he's also someone that needs to do something. He needs to act. But neither of them are in a situation where they should be dating. Right, neither of them are in a position to have those skills to help each other get through these things, and you know she cares about him and and she attaches a lot of respect for him because when she was fourteen, he was the only reason her planet did not fall to evil, right like that would be like um you know that would be like the hero the, you know the 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 guys who uh liberated the concentration camp right uh in world war ii you know saying like wow you're a hero you saved my entire family and my entire people and i'm really grateful um but i'm going to just say no forget it you overreacted to your mom's horrible torturous death (laughs) you are very good at this (laughs) (laughs) I've, i've got one change in, in the, it just popped in my head to um, that's in the Phantom edit that that I I'm interested because I, I love I love throwing my my like issues with the films to you because you have you, you're pretty good at debunking them. So one of my favorite changes is that he makes it so Anakin didn't shoot the droid ship reactor, he did it on purpose rather than oops. Uh-huh. How, how, do, you, how, how do you find that one? Well, I mean... Because I never liked it that he did it by accident. The thing about the accident is that Qui-Gon says in the film, nothing happens by accident. 
And so you're supposed to feel that the force is working with him through him so forcefully that something that he finds to be an accident is on purpose. There's no way that battle could have been won had that not happened. And taking into context, Qui-Gon saying, nothing happens by accident. In those very forceful words that the Force had purposely designed for that to happen. So it wasn't an accident. It, it felt like an accident, accident to Anakin because his focus was there. And, and like Qui-Gon said, your focus determines your reality. But to the Force, that was not an accident. That was exactly what needed to happen. Hmm. That, that gets into the mystical nature of things, too. And what, what is the will of the Force? And what are these prophecies? And how is he the chosen one? And, and that all changes every 40 seconds when a new anything that deals with the mythology of the Force comes out. What is... I keep reading things... People debating that, like, will Ray or Kylo Ren be the chosen one? Like, I, like I don't hear any talk in this new canon about chosen ones. Uh, haven't we chosen? Don't we have the one? Um, well, I think that that meant something different than we thought. And I think Clone Wars on Mortis taught us that the chosen one was the one who could actually achieve that balance between these disparate uh, force energies on you know, in this nether region of pure force nexus. And I don't think Ray or Kylo really give a crap about any of that. I think that Anakin made his choice then on Mortis and that, that sort of decided for everything. Cause if you look at Mortis, Mortis, um, it has really interesting echoes of what happens throughout the cycle of the movies, uh, and the series, right? Like, uh, Father sacrificing himself for daughter has echoes of the situation with uh, Ahsoka and Anakin, but also it's a very direct relation to um, Luke and Vader at the end of Return of the Jedi, right? And if Luke represents all of the, the daughter aspects of the Force, right, that pure selflessness and father who had this chosen one ability to control both sides chooses to sacrifice himself to save that aspect of the force that means a lot in the the context of what that chosen one balance is so i think the chosen one is done i think you're right we have chosen and uh and that's that but uh, that doesn't mean more mysteries of the force won't uh unburden themselves into our fragile hearts I feel like I'm podcasting with a fortune cookie at times. Uh, you know, you watch enough Clone Wars and you see enough fortune cookies, you start to talk <laughs> like them. Excellent. Hey, uh, Brian, it, it has been so fun and and I, I really enjoy bouncing um, my at times my Star Wars qualms uh, against you. Now... What I always want to know from guests is, you know, where we're about, we've entered this life of endless Star Wars films. No longer do we have to, um, you know, weather these 15-year storms of uh, not going to the cinema to see a Star Wars. What are you most looking forward to or what you most want to happen in Star Wars going forward? Um, I mean, the most the thing I'm looking forward to most right now is The Last Jedi, so we can stop talking about Han Solo. Um, and then as soon as Last Jedi's out, then the next thing I'm most excited for is Han Solo. 
Um, it's just not time for Han Solo yet. Um, but no, if if there's a lot of things that I want to see, and there's a lot of stories that have been alluded to, and if we're going to continue getting standalones that are based on stories that were alluded to in the movies or the cartoons or anything, one of the ones I want to see the most is uh, uh, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon on the run during the Mandalore War with Satine and Obi-Wan and Satine beginning their relationship with him as a young Padawan. Um, and then because that gives you Mandos as bad guys, you've got them like on the run for their lives. They're trying to protect this young queen or this young duchess. And that sort of it's got all the seven samurai hidden fortress buttons I really love. I think that would be a really great story. And who knows? I'd also really love to see a master and a Padawan. Like I want to see the movie start with Order 66 and then show them like a like a tense thriller movie trying to like navigate getting away and then eventually they don't it just ends like rogue one <laughs> what a bummer now if if in your um mind's eye of this obi-wan qui-gon film is it, it doesn't sound like ewan mcgregor could star in that in that version no you'd probably need to find somebody you've never heard of you know to to play that young like 15 16 year old obi-wan which would be fine. I think that's young enough that you can you could suspend your disbelief. We've already switched actors for a younger model once. Why not again? Yeah. And I bet and... you probably could still use Liam Neeson, though. Ooh. Yeah. I reckon. I mean, he was already pretty aged in Phantom Menace, and they aged him up a little, a lot, too, you know? Like, he didn't have gray hair then or anything. And look at what Marvel's doing with younging their actors up. Yeah, and it might be a bit like the juxtaposition of having the old one of this, but then the young one of that. That that might confuse. Like, well, we did, but we did that with uh, Ewan McGregor and Jake Lloyd and Hayden Christensen. Touche, good sir. Touche. Hmm. That was yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to see that. I, I would. Um, I don't know. It's it's a that, story they've alluded to. Just throwing that out there. Well, what do you think about the the pre, like the between episode three to episode four, uh, Ewan McGregor Obi Wan film? Where do you stand on that one? Um, you know, having re- read John Jackson Miller's Kenobi movie uh, book, I mean, I say movie because it feels like a movie. I could see a very interesting Shane-like Western being told there. Um, And I would be uh, really happy to see something like that. I don't know. I mean, the really interesting thing about Obi-Wan Kenobi in that time period is him learning to not be a Jedi. So it kind of sounds like the opposite of a, a Star Wars movie, right? Like, Mm. everybody's always racing to learn how to be a Jedi, and you've got Obi-Wan Kenobi having to sit still in one place and not draw attention to himself and not help anybody, right? Like, he has to turn to, like, Ayn Rand philosophy. Um, He, it's, that's an interesting idea. Like, how do you turn that off? You know, how can, how do you turn off being a superhero, right? And maybe they just did that in The Incredibles, and that's the best Obi-Wan movie we're going to get, but... Yeah, I just don't know if that makes for a a great 
film. Like, how do I learn not to be exciting in this film? Yeah. Well, and that's like, the thing. Like, it feel it sounds like a great idea for a movie where you've got that that warrior who has to step back and and learn how to not be a warrior. That's great for an indie film. I'm not sure a Star Wars film works for that, unless they can come up with some reason to have him like off planet and he has to be himself again, or, uh, or or some. I'm sure the minds there, if they're going to do it, can come up with a great reason for it. But uh, but maybe that arc can very much be like Shane, right? Where he tries. Uh, have you seen Shane? Oh, uh, not for a long time though. Like I mean, the whole thing is about this this gunslinger who wants to just be a farmer now and he blows into this new town and he can't really help anything and he's just sort of getting bullied around and he's taking it because he's taking on this pacifist sort of vibe but uh, Jack Palance is sort of the bad guy and he's just terrorizing everybody and he kind of picks up the gun one last time to go deal with these bullies that are terrorizing the town and he ends up taking a bullet while he's doing it and he just sort of rides off into the sunset and nobody ever sees him again and uh you know he says it's like uh well it's the ending of logan too like they use it in the ending of logan right there's no more guns in the valley and uh they don't know if he lived or died at the end i mean in logan we know that he he didn't you know whether he lived or died but not in shane and that would be like the perfect cover for kenobi like he tries really hard but can't goes into action they presume him dead and then he goes and and goes into his hiding that could work it could do you think Obi-Wan should stay on the planet the whole time? Um, I think if he left, it would probably be really um, terrifying to him. I think he should, but but isn't forcing him off the planet causing him more distress, and that's what you want in drama? Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess in my head I'd always pictured... Like that, that was sort of like the noble thing about Yoda and Obi-Wan was it just, they just went, yep, we messed that up and our penance is now just to sit on these like pretty average planets for the next 25 years or whatever. And below average. (laughs) (laughs) So you're finally being negative, Brian. (laughs) No, I mean like... One of them's dirt farming and the other one's like algae farming. Like that's not that's not fun. It's not fun at all. It is not fun at all. Yeah, so I always sort of just had in my head that was sort of part of their noble thing was that they just they just ate it. They just they just copped it sweet. This is our we're, we're, like they were, we're sort of like imprisoned ourselves because we've done badly and we have to like think about what we did and and plan for the future. Like do their own sort of rehab. Yeah. With Qui-Gon as the phone connection between them. Hey, man. He can always Skype in. He can yeah. always Skype in. Brian, thanks so much, man. I um, I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure all the listeners uh, did as well. Where can the good people of the internet track you down with your um, pretty impressive output? Um, so I, I think the place to kind of see most everything is my Twitter. So if you want to follow me, I'm at Swankmotron on Twitter. Um, having said that, we talked about the Full of Sith podcast. You can find me there uh, every week. Uh, I do another podcast that Star Wars fans might be interested in called Fothentic History. And uh, that's where we take 
fake history from our favorite nerd properties, mostly Star Wars. Every other episode is Star Wars. And we treat it like we're real historians. So our first episode was the Battle of Hoth, and we broke it down like it was a battle from World War II. Um, really? That yeah. is a compelling idea. Yeah. So, so it's, it's F, how do you spell that? F-A-U-X-T-H-E-N-T-I-C. Fauthentic. It's fancy. It's French. Um, but, uh, yeah, so <laughs> our newest episode that just came out was about, uh, we, we did that with the battle of Christophsis actually, um, which was harder than it sounded, but we, we try to take all of the canon material, uh, when we do star Wars episodes, unless like it says legendary in the title, you know, it's, it's all from the canon. Okay. Um, that, that's a cool idea, man. And then, um, and then you can find my writing pretty regularly on StarWars.com and, and on BigShinyRobot.com. And uh, uh, I write books, too, so you can look me up. Just type my name into Amazon. And it'll show you all kinds of weird stuff I've written. I can't thank you enough. I really appreciate it. And until next time, may that force be with you. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that super fun episode with the fascinating Star Wars mind of Brian Young. Make sure you check out Full of Sith wherever good podcasts are downloaded. And if you're new to the podcast, maybe you've come because of Brian. Welcome. Please check out our rather extensive back catalogue of interviews with Star Wars fans, cast and crew, as well as our weekly call-in show where you can Skype or call in and chat with myself and the guest of the week about whatever Star Wars topic comes to mind. And after the show, me and Brian made plans that he's going to come on a call-in show and maybe we'll do a bit of a, a therapy session. Uh, much like Brian did for a few of my Star Wars quibbles, that you guys can call in and see if Brian's brilliant Star Wars brain can unravel your issue and explain it for you. You don't have to accept Brian's reasoning, but you, you have to appreciate the way his mind works. So that will be a super fun live call-in episode and keep an ear out on Facebook and Twitter for when we organize that one. But it is an exciting couple of weeks in the fandom. Steel Wars will be blog-potting all the way through Disney's D23 Expo and San Diego Comic-Con. If you don't know what a blog-pod is, it is my daily audio diary. Whoever I bump into... They're on the podcast now. We'll be podcasting from inside panels, in lines, late night, early morning. It is going to be so much fun. We'll be talking with licensees. I just confirmed an interview with Hasbro today. And uh, we're going to have the best time ever. If you are going to San Diego Comic Con, I'll be appearing on Chris Gore's Dysfunctional Skywalker Family Panel, which will be at Comic Con 7.30 on the Friday night. So it's a good chance to catch up. And uh, maybe you can jump on the podcast yourself. If you want to support the podcast, 
There are several ways. The easiest way is to give us a retweet or share on Twitter or write a sweet five-star review. If you want to support us in a very small financial way, you can subscribe to our Patreon feed from just $3 a month. Not only do you help support the ongoing production of the podcast, you get a direct RSS feed featuring the full-length episode of every Steel Wars episode to date, along with weekly bonus episodes, including extended call-in shows and supporter-exclusive shows like listener Q&As and my exclusive Making Steel Wars show, where each week I talk to Jason Ward of Making Star Wars Net about the news behind the news, a very popular feature on the Steel Wars Patreon. You just paste an RSS feed into your phone and all the episodes directly load up like any other podcast. It is super sweet. We are part of the Making Star Wars Podcast Network. MakingStarWars.net is the internet's home for Star Wars news and rumors. You know you click there. You want those sweet rumors. And we've got a podcast network of Top Shelf Star Wars podcasts pumping out stuff all from a different point of view. You've got the flagship now. This is podcasting, the Cantina cast, breaking down the characters of Star Wars. Rebel Girl, Rogue One, a Star Wars podcast for winners. The Force Cult, Idiots Array, Tarkin's Top Shelf, The Cargo Hold, and more. Also, of late, I've popped up on the Fingered podcast with Randy and Jason from Making Star Wars, where they tackle topics, very strange topics. I'll find what episodes I was just on that you should listen to. The July 3rd episode, we talk about stuffing. That one is not safe. Actually, none of these are safe for work. The stuffing one is... Ooh, I learned a lot. We all learned a lot. And then the June 27th episode, uh, Jaden Smith is Batman, Will Smith's son. We cover his adventures dressing as Batman and it's enlightening. So check out Fingered Podcast on iTunes or wherever podcasts are dished out, downloaded, streamed, all that good stuff. Very excited about the convention season about to start. New interviews, new teasers, new gasping. It's it's going to be great. And uh, make sure you are subscribed. And uh, you can follow us every step of the way. Hope you enjoyed the ep. I had a ball recording it with Brian and May. That force be with you.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 